Welcome to the Peppered Podcast, where food and beverage marketing professionals get seasoned talk on how to grow and manage their brands. Hey everyone, this is Jamie Allabach coming at you on the Peppered Podcast. My guest on the show today is Jeff Metzger. He's the president of Best Met Publishing and the publisher for Food World, Food Trade News, and the Mid-Atlantic Grocery Industry Directory. As a 40-year veteran, Jeff is recognized as an industry expert in the supermarket business. He's been the go-to guy for decades for manufacturers, brands, retail executives, buyers, brokers, and really anyone who wants to be in the know about the grocery biz. Jeff brings invaluable insight to the table, and I'm super excited to have him on the show. So let's find out what's going on in the food and beverage retail biz with Jeff Metzger. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the Peppered Podcast. Thank you, Jamie. Hey, before we jump into things, I, you know, I, I, I've got to tell a quick story. I remember, I, I guess it's going back maybe 10, 15 years ago, and I was working with one of our, our regional brands who you know well, Hatfield, Hatfield Meats. They're a, they're a big uh, regional provider of pork, and, and we were working on a, on a, on a new, new product launch at the time, and it was a retailer-specific gig. And, you know, we were looking for some sort of data at some point. And, and, and Rusty Ryan, a guy I worked with for years, he said, why don't you call Jeff Metzger? He, he'll, he'll have that kind of data. And I'm there. Well, who's, who's Jeff Metzger? He said, well, he's got everything that you need for this. And that's, that's kind of the, the story of, of your life, right? Is Jeff, Jeff's connected and got all this information and retailers and manufacturers really say you're the go-to guy, right? Well, first of all, uh, Rusty was thankful when that check came his way for the uh, plug. (laughs) But we have been doing this for 40 years, and uh, we write about the retail food industry um, in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast. So... uh, We've uh, we know where a lot of the bodies are buried, not all of them. That's right. All right, so let's let's just jump right into things and and let's talk a little bit about retailers and how they've been adapting to how consumers are eating, what they're eating, and and how they're purchasing it. Something that 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 we in the industry often refer to as share of stomach. So what what are some of the major areas of disruption here that that you've seen, Jeff? Well, I think maybe the uh, uh, one of the key areas of disruption is the fact that the generational base is changing, and many retailers are still um, adapting to that change. They understand their consumers are younger, their habits are different, they're looking for cleaner foods, healthier food, reading labels is more important. So they're trying to make the adjustment. It is a slow adjustment because they're still serving other audiences, particularly boomers who have the disposable income and are still a key part of their business. But absolutely, the focus on most retailers today is how do you please and how do you retain the millennials, the Gen Yers, and the Generation Z uh, shopper. Yeah, and I think you know, I think you're seeing that exact same thing on the manufacturing and brand side. Is that they're adapting to that? The retailers are telling them um, they've got to adapt, and the manufacturer's own research indicates that um, you know people just aren't eating spam anymore. 
Yeah. So 15 to 20 years ago, traditional supermarkets really had the market cornered on food, but it's quite a different story today. Um, how, how are supermarkets evolving and remaining the primary destination for consumers? Basically, how are they, how are they staying relevant in the, in the food business? Well, um, although the share of supermarket business is declining from the entire uh, pie, supermarkets are still the dominant place where people shop every week, twice a week, sometimes every day. So the retailers have done a good job, the supermarket retailers have done a good job of keeping their focus directly with their customers. The question is, with the changing generational base, how do you create more loyalty? How do you keep those shoppers out of different channels that sell food? So while the traditional supermarket is still the main go-to place, uh, their share is declining when compared to club stores, dollar stores, drug chains that sell food, convenience stores. Um, so protecting that for the traditional supermarket is very, very important. And I'd say the number one way they're trying to protect their share is to create clear separation and differentiation. What can they offer in their stores that a club store can't, that a dollar store can't, that a, that a, uh, uh, a Walmart or a Target can't? So that's been the focus. A lot of that, more specifically, has centered on fresh and perishables. Yeah, and you know what you're seeing now is you're seeing, in addition to all those other retail outlets that you've mentioned, but you're also seeing a resurgence of these local markets and farms and things like that. Like, I buy almost all of my meat now from a local farm. I go in there, they've got a small shop set up there. I can get my, my chicken fresh, my beef. Everything I want is, is, is right there. And I, you're right, I still go to the supermarket, but I have, I have three, maybe four different supermarkets that I go to, but have these other, other venues as well. Well, farmer's markets are definitely a, a growth item. The, um, uh, the challenge in retail food in general is finding the labor and finding the capital. So you've got to have people willing to make that sacrifice. Um, but you're turning into a true millennial. A uh, little loyalty. At, at my age, who'd have thought? <laughs> cross shopping, little loyalty. I want it now, and this is what I want. And this is uh, a major shopping shift that we've seen over the last 15 years. It's not, I go to this supermarket for 80% of my purchases. You might go to that supermarket if you're 38 years old, for 25% of your purchases, and that's not a bad number if you're a retailer analyzing that. So, so what you're saying is at 55, there's still hope for me to maybe be a little cool. Yeah, for 55, <laughs> you're way cool. <laughs> right. So in this, in this shift, in this sh scrambling for the share of stomach, what role has e-commerce played in this? Uh, to me, e-commerce's role is more bark than bite. But clearly, there's growth on the whole e-commerce digital side. Right now, we estimate that the total share of market is about 5%. Um, over the next 10 years, it could rise as high as 15%. If you listen to trade observers and people who measure this stuff, I don't think it can get higher than 15%. Um, the challenge is um, food is different 
than soft goods and apparel and electronics and shoes and things of that nature. So people still want to generally touch and smell the food. Um, and and supermarkets and other bricks-and-mortar outlets, I think, are going to persevere for a very long time just because of that fact. Yeah, and I even, I even see my behavior shifting with with e-commerce. I mean, I've, you know, I've been an e-commerce guy for for many years and I've bought a lot of stuff on 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 Amazon and you know, probably 5 years ago, I was the guy saying, I'm never going to buy my food on Amazon. It's like, come on, it's good for for this and good for that. Well, guess what? I'm buying some food on Amazon. I'm buying stuff that's hard for me to find in the grocery stores so I don't have to go on that trek of okay, do they have it here? Do they have it there? I know I can get it online. So now my, my latest thing is, well, I'll never buy fresh goods on online. So I don't know. I don't know if my song will be changing in a few years or, or not, but you see a lot of people buying food. I mean, the whole, the whole foods, Amazon, you know, merger is, is a great example of how they're trying to, trying to change that, 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 behavior. Well, that is the, the litmus test for me. How much fresh food are you going to buy uh, ultimately? Yeah, it's easy to say that you're buying uh, uh, pet food from Chewy.com or Amazon. Uh, that's not an edible. And it's even easy to say, I bought my Campbell's soup from uh, an e-commerce um, delivery merchant. Uh, that's maybe within the the realm of believability. But a lot of people will draw the line and have drawn the line and perishables, uh, convenience too. I mean, you know, you can't get much more convenient than Amazon if you're doing something online, but does it replace going to the eighth store, not necessarily a supermarket, and uh, uh, getting a takeout pizza or getting a sub sandwich that's made in the store or even a grab and go? So that's the delineation marker for me. Where does it go? And countering that, supermarkets have learned their lesson, too. Um, and not just supermarkets. Walmart's done a great job of doing this hybrid, what they call um, ship the store, other people call uh, clicks and collect or buy online, uh, pick up in store. Um, many supermarkets nationally now have utilized Instacart, which is a substitute for what Amazon does. So the, the, the traditional bricks-and-mortar retailers, retailers are fighting back and saying, we're going to offer some of that stuff, too. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm, I'm an experiential guy. I still, you know, I like looking and touching and feeling and shopping. I like, I like that whole experience, but I know that, you know, I'm a bit of an anomaly when it comes to that. How about... How about meal kits? Um, I, I'm just I'm shocked at at the growth that I've seen in this area, and I'm even more shocked at some of my friends, even my age, when it, when when they say, "Yeah, you know, we got all this shipped in, and you know, our meals, you know, I just make them from these these kits now." And there, you serious? But I'm a foodie, you know. I like I like to buy food. I like to cook. I like all of that stuff. So, I mean, it's not it's not for me, but it, it's growing, right? No. No, <laughs> I mean it is. It is growing. So, so I've bought into the hype, right? It's, it's to me, it's hype overriding hope. So, yeah, there's certainly a platform for meal kits as a solution for for dinner. However, everybody jumped in the pool. There are eight to ten companies who got sizable PE money originally to go play in that pool. 
Uh, it became very overcrowded. There's been some notable failures. And um, what's happened is the retailers themselves have kind of weaponized their own meal kit. Uh, Albertsons bought a company called Plated, so they took it in-house. Other retailers are developing their own meal kit and solution-based um, offerings within their own private label or internal kitchen structure. So, yeah, there's certainly hope. Uh, to me, HelloFresh is the best model out there. Um, I guess one of the uh, things that I discovered about meal kits is they're pretty expensive, there's a lot of extra packaging, right. which uh, younger people don't necessarily like, um, and it takes time to prepare that. It's not literally as convenient as you might believe initially. Hmm. Wow. I can't believe that me, an advertising guy, bought into the hype of all of this. Well, listen, you know, it was, uh, the marketing was slick and the concept <laughs> was novel, and uh, I get it, too. Right, right. So let's talk about supermarkets specific. Um, I'll make a couple statements here, and you can kind of react to these. So Center of Store seems to still be struggling while Frozen is making an upward tick, and pretty much anything plant-based is on fire. I mean, what what categories do you see that are growing, and and what are what are what are shrinking? Well, center store is always going to be a challenge for any retailer. It's the biggest part of their business. In one sense, it makes money while you sleep. Uh, whether it's selling Clorox or Nabisco, there's not a lot of. Um, in-store merchandising work that's needed as opposed to perishables. So there are some categories within Center Store, such as um, seltzer um, within the soft drink category, carbonated beverages oh, yeah, for the yeah, most part, good, yeah. you know, sodas, they're flat or down. But within that entire category, seltzers are booming. Um, take an item such as... Um, uh, ready-to-eat cereals, very, very flat, still tremendous tonnage, people, but the next generation, they're not eating um, sugary cereals nearly as much. They're looking for healthier alternatives. Um, you look at meats, meats have been pretty flat, but you look at organic meats, tremendous growth in that category. So there's a touchstone for everybody within the core categories but some of the less cleaner foods, the more processed foods, are not getting the same type of attention. Obviously, stuff like ethnic foods, way up. People are more experimental. Um, there's more information known about ethnic foods. So it's not just the, the people who grew up who are natives of other countries who grew up eating that type of food. Now the younger generations are more exposed to that as part of their weekly shopping list in many cases. So if you had a boatload of money to invest, where where would Jeff Metzger put his money? What category would you put your money in? Uh, plant-based foods and uh, uh, cannabinoid oil, <laughs> CB, CBD oil. I think you're right there. What um, innovation, you know, innovation is hot, you know, with, with manufacturers and brands and with retailers as well. Has that played a significant role from your perspective in this, in this idea of share of stomach? 
the pure brands? In, innovation in, in general. I mean, when you think about new things that are coming, new ways, I mean, you could say on the, on, on the retailer side, new ways of, of, of merchandising or new types of categories that come into play or new, you know, new products on the brand side. I mean, do you think that that, I mean, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to make my decision as to whether I'm going to go to either A, B, or C, Retailer, do you think that, that 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 would play a role for me at all? Like earlier, you had mentioned with the, some of these solutions to to Amazon and things like that that the retailers are doing. But do you think innovation? One, do you think that the retailers are are doing well at that? Because it's all you hear about anymore on the brand side of things is innovation, innovation, innovation. Uh, are they doing it well, and has it played a role in in decision making when it comes? Yes. I- Absolutely. Uh, I think retailers, and getting back to the previous statement of what can you create as a point of difference? Um, and some of these emerging brands and some of these newer categories that we just discussed are definitely creating an impact within the retail food realm. Uh, people are looking for those brands, and, and millennials and Gen Yers and Gen Zers are, are acquiring those brands. They're, they're procuring those brands at store level. They're looking for them. So within this system, which was very rigid, um, you know, almost um, um, archaic in terms of getting a product on the shelf where there was slotting needed, tremendous amounts of marketing money, that still exists, but there's been a lot more flexibility because these companies, these new brands, these new items are driving that point of separation. Mm-hmm. So we've tiptoed around it a little bit, but let's let's talk more in depth about this this generational piece. So we know millennials uh, have been changing the game uh, for for brands and retailers, and we know that Gen Z is now coming into their buying power, uh, and they're bringing new disruption in and of itself. Uh, how, how many brands and retailers are are changing well? To, to accommodate these groups. I mean, are there are there retailers out there or brands out there that you can say these guys are really nailing it when it comes to these younger, you know, younger buyers? Well, again, I think the retailers that focus more on perishables are having better success. It's a double-edged sword, Jamie. You want to be in the perishable realm. Um, getting in becomes even more capital and labor intensive than what is foundational in the retail food business. But if you do it well, that's where the hot area is all around. That's where consumers are making a lot of their purchases. And 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 that's where the profit margins right now are, are greater. And just look at an item that like kombucha. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, to me, it's like drinking rusty pipes. <laughs> to it, my kids and their friends, to. <laughs> they think this is great. It's yeah. almost like, have you totally ignored the taste? But they enjoy the taste. Right. Maybe because they never grew up on having a lot of sugary drinks. <laughs> the sweet teas, um, right. So, um, yeah, there's there's definitely hot areas. Um, uh, you know, the plant-based thing, which you t- touched on, it is on fire. I, I I once heard once heard a millennial say that that they shop 
the perimeter of the supermarket, and that's it. So they go into produce, they circle around to to the meat section, and then they go to the dairy, and then they're out. That they don't shop center of store at the supermarkets. Is that true? Well, that's true, and that's a a bigger issue of change, and that's the lack of loyalty. So where you and I may have shopped at one or two stores per week and this fit the weekly meal plan, I think beginning with millennials and then um, getting younger, there's no more loyalty or very little left. So what you've seen is it's not a big hassle to cross shop. If you want to buy your perishables at Outlet A and you want to go to a club to stock up on your households and you want to go to a mass mass merchandiser to buy your health and beauty care, or you want to go to the local guy to um, buy what he may have that's that's separated from everybody else, or go to a farmer's market on a weekend to buy fresh produce or, or organic meat. That's all part and parcel of the evolution. Whereas years ago... You went to one place and bought everything. One or two, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about private label. I've talked about this a lot uh, on on my show. And, you know, it's a deep, multi-level discussion. And depending on who you're talking to can be a very impassioned um, discussion. So first, let's agree that 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 this is a completely different animal than it was, you know, years ago. Uh, quality is terrific. The selection is awesome. Uh, you can pretty much get anything you want in private label and really not sacrifice anything. Um, so let, let's start off on, on the retailer side. Uh, there are some retailers from my perspective who are doing a great job of it. They've got a healthy balance between uh, brands and private label. Some are not really strongly in the game at all. And then you have others that have kind of gone over the top a little. I'll use the example that I use often, you know, of, uh, you know, yeah, I'm going to name names giant, you know, for one, I, I shop at giant. I'm a giant shopper, but you know, they, they've just irked me with their, with their, with their nature's promise brand. They just have, I feel like they've, they've, as a consumer, I'm putting all my consumer hat and moving away from the marketing piece of this as a consumer, they've irked me and backed me into a corner and given me little to no choice in some categories that I have to buy their brand. And that just really pisses me off. And I think other consumers feel, feel the same way. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Not just specifically on that. You can address that if you want. That's just my perspective. Uh, you can address that. But in general, retailers that are doing well, retailers that are not doing so well at this private label, some that are doing, you know, ex- you know going to the left or going to the right. What's your what's Jeff's perspective on this? Well, I, I think, it, first of all, you're right. It's become very complex. It's become a profit opportunity, a greater profit opportunity for the retailers. If we're just talking retailers right now. And they've recognized um, by bringing in professional marketing people over the last 10 to 12 years that there's a way to better market and better sell own brands or private labels. Um, But part of it to me, in my opinion, is in the overall shopping experience. So you said you were frustrated by giant maybe overloading. But I could give you the counter to that and say Wegmans has much more private label as a, as a balance of their total product mix. Um, the facings on the shelf where private label is at Wegmans is probably more prominent 
than at Giant, yet you don't feel that way about Wegmans. And my point is, well, what's your takeaway? I mean, generally, and this is a battle that the industry can, continues to fight, is how do I make the shopping experience, the trip, more pleasurable? And a lot of retailers would settle for, give me a C+. Plus. They'd love to have an A, but a lot of the their analytics that come back, the data that they receive is they're getting C- minuses and Ds. It's a hassle to shop. How do you make the experience better? So when you go to a Wegmans, generally people find the experience better than the average retailer. It's a big theater of food. It's a pleasant place to shop. The store is clean. There's enough front-end people checking you out. But when it comes to private label, the perception is, no, I get everything I wanted at Wegmans. And you're telling me, well, I could maybe do that at Giant, but now I'm sort of impeded by this, you know, this um, overload of private label. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess you're right. I mean, it's not as noticeable at Wegmans, but I also feel the variety, too, is there. At, I, I have a choice, more of a choice at Wegmans, and maybe that's just an illusion from how, how, yeah, they're, how they're merchandising. I think in, in the grocery area, in the center store area, it probably is more of an illusion. But when you complement that with their perishable area, which is unique, segregated, merchandised and presented in a dynamic way, it seems to, like, counterbalance what, if you looked at straight analytics, said, well, wait a second, they've got a lot of private label here, and I might not be able to buy 14 sizes of Heinz ketchup. Right. It's probably true, but yep. maybe that gets counterbalanced by... The other departments. How about how about the manufacturing side of this? I mean, I know I know and work with companies that that have fully embraced this. Um, some of them have even abandoned their brand at some level to really go, you know, whole hog into uh, the private labels. Others have a nice balance of it, you know, where they supplement. And then I, I work with some companies that will have nothing to do with 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 private branding because they want all their investment to go towards their brand. I mean, what have you seen on, on that side of it? So um, private label is a sticky wicket. I mean, uh, and for manufacturers as a whole, the opportunities are more, are more limited. Um, to your point, suppliers need to decide if they want to pack items that will not be marketed under their own name. That sometimes is an internal struggle based on the philosophy or mission statement of the company. Um, critical choice for those people who say, I want to engage. And then the other piece is you're constantly on the hamster wheel. There's no guarantees. You're probably going to be on a, a request for proposition um, uh, to review your status with that particular company, maybe every six months, maybe every 18 months. But you're on that rotating wheel of do I retain private labels? So you've got to mentally be prepared for that. Um, it also internally for a manufacturer creates supply chain issues. So how much of your supply chain and manufacturing process are you going to devote to packing somebody else's label? And if you have a downturn, you don't get the contract from Retailer X. How do you adjust to that? Um, but there are companies who become more dedicated. They've developed a solid um, reputation um, with their retail partners and have been very, very successful. Obviously, um, 
with the original point of private label being much broader, much more focused on tiers and um, uh, variety. Uh, There are some items now in circulation uh, that you won't find anywhere. One of my favorite items is Wegmans frozen artichokes. It's hard to find frozen artichokes anywhere, much less in private label. So there's an opportunity for that supplier or those suppliers to create a niche, at least with one customer. Right. But when the pendulum swings, it can swing, right? It can swing, and the door could close, and you've got to, again, you've got to strategize on what happens if we don't get that bid for this period. How do we? How does that affect us from the core of running the company to the whole supply chain of, okay, we still have private label with X customer, but not with Y. How do we treat brands? Do we promote more with our brand? And how do we, how do we keep that balance in sync? Right. So from your seat, where you're sitting right now, who, who's doing it right? Who, who are the hottest retailers in America right now? Who, who, who would you put up there as these guys are, are, are the A's, A pluses of the industry? Uh, so from all retail channels, um, Costco, in clubs, Aldi, in what we call extreme value or deep discount, uh, on the more traditional realm, Wegmans, certainly Trader Joe's, which has a niche of all their own. I would put uh, HEB, which is a regional chain in Texas, at the top of the list. There are several others, and these guys all wear the same mantle of consistency and a place where consumers like to shop. Have, have, so have they been able to redefine this this idea of, of consumer loyalty because it seems you know it seems to me from my perspective that 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 is a thing of the past but are the first of all is it out there anymore and and are these top retailers in your mind have they done a better job of of of, of carving out a niche where consumers are more loyal to them than everyday grocery retailers yes but again understanding that they're still feeling the effects of cross-shopping or diminishing loyalty. So, you know, if you have any of those companies are not going to get all of a typical consumer's, particularly a young consumer's business. But if Costco can survive and succeed on saying, we're going to get by just selling household items as a replacement from a traditional supermarket or develop an item that is unique. Uh, I was in a Costco, and they were selling... Um, octopus uh, in the refrigerated section. It was branded. It was vacuum sealed. Probably wouldn't find that in a typical supermarket. So it's that treasure hunt. Trader Joe's another good example of a treasure hunt retailer, which makes it exciting and creates a greater level of loyalty, but not at the level that you would have seen 25 years ago. Right. And I think, you know, the old adage of location, location, location comes into play here because there, there's not a Costco on on every corner. I've got a, you know, I have a 20 minute ride to the nearest Costco, but I've got three 
supermarkets within five minutes that I could go to. So yeah, I, I love going to Costco and I go to Costco, but I don't go to Costco every week for things. Same thing with Wegmans. There's not a Wegmans on every corner. Wegmans is 20 minutes from me as well. I If there was a Wegmans within five minutes, I would do all of my shopping at Wegmans, no question about it, but they're not. So I, you know, I get there every other week to, to do some fun so those, produce. So those stores in, in, in this market that have um, large concentration of, of units, um, their opportunity is to, is to take advantage of their convenience because convenience is still a key factor in shopping decisions. Convenience of location and convenience of uh, product available in the stores, you know, whether it's grab and go, whether it's fresh cut fruit and vegetables, that's all part of it. And I think those traditional supermarkets, which may not have made your A-list, they're aware of that. And that's why they're getting, they're trying to improve their perishables presentations. They're they're signing up with Instacart. They have a a clicks and collects models, you know, uh, buy online, pick up in store. They're striving for that. To me, it becomes a question of execution. If the execution is good and that's everything from how the store is perceived to how long you have to wait online to check out, typically you're going to you're going to be ahead of the game. But if that separation is more ambiguous, you're just another you're just another store where you may or may not get some of the business, but not consistently most of it. Yep, yep. Look, change is inevitable. Um, doesn't matter whether you're on the brand side or on the retail side. Consumers are going to change. Products are going to change. Brands, retailers are going to change. These things are, are, are out there, and it's a matter of how you embrace it, how you adapt and move with it. What do you see as some of the top threats that are facing retailers right now when it comes to comes to change? Well, um, first of all, look at the picture, not only here in the Delaware Valley, but nationally. From the industry's perspective, these markets are way overstored. There's too many places to buy food, and now other channels are using food as either a loss leader or a prime component in their lineup. So there's a lot of stores and there's a lot of retail diversity in terms of style. So that's definitely a threat. How are you gonna how are you gonna maneuver around the race course without it getting so um, clouded? And again, I think retailers need to concentrate on execution, having enough people in the stores, training them well enough, keeping the stores clean, well stocked, the basic fundamentals. And again, as I said earlier, what's your point of difference? What's your separation from the other guy? Uh, you know, you can make that question, you can answer that question pretty easily if you're Wegmans. Theater of food, everything's there. You want to buy Chilean sea bass, you can get it there. You can make that argument pretty easily for, for Costco, you know, uh, really good pricing, good quality, variety, kind of a treasure hunt, as I said earlier, make shopping exciting. Many of the others are still searching for that point of separation. Can't get there until you get the fundamentals of execution down. And I think that's where the challenge is for a lot of these retailers. Yeah, yeah. Very how about how about opportunities? What do you think are some of the biggest opportunities that are out there to to be seized that maybe are not being um, captivated by by some of these retailers? 
Well, some of it is as easy as listening to your customers and, again, being able to implement what they say. If they want an item or want a department and say, look, you need to add grab-and-go deli because when I come in here for lunch, I just want to grab a pound of lunch meat or a, um, a sub. Um, not very labor-intensive in terms of what it costs the retailer to output, but something that would satisfy a customer. You know, um, kombucha. Obviously, the analytics say it's a popular item. It's really popular from people from 18 to 32. Well, what are you doing about that? So it's kind of majoring in the minors, if you will, because the business is so uh, capital-intensive and labor-intensive, and uh, the net profit at the end of the day, despite the high volume, is 1% to 1.5%. So you got to be really good at what you're doing. And if you take shortcuts with the current climate out there, you're not going to win. Right, right. We, we talked a little bit about this on, on, on the phone yesterday when we were doing some, some show prep. But this idea about manufacturers and brands marketing themselves to to retailers. This is so often a component that that gets left out of the equation these days and and it's something that I I'm always pushing. Consumers are always I mean manufacturers are always hyper energized on the consumer side, which is great. They need to be. They need consumers to buy their brand, but they often forget about the fact that they have to market their brand to the trade side of it, to to buyers, to retailers, and what? Talk a little bit about that because I know you've had a lot of experience in that space. It's a really good question, and it is improving. But you know, uh, there used to be an expression used on one of the, uh, the older Red Sox teams when the the roster was twenty five players, and it was twenty five players, twenty five cabs. And for a long time, I don't think the manufacturer gave much credence to the customer until it came time to sell them. They, um, um, they utilize their research on what they think con- consumers want. I think it is getting better, but I think it's mutually getting better that retailers are now reaching out. Yeah, they're at the end of the line. They have the final decision. But I think the partnership has improved over the last 10 years where manufacturers now want to work with their retail customers and the consumers. And part of that is... It's kind of a shrinking base that no one customer, maybe the exception of Walmart, is so dominant in retail food that you can't afford to pay attention or not cannot afford um, to pay attention to, uh, to every customer. I think that's gotten better. The other piece, which is obviously is key, there's so much data around now. Everybody sees the data. They know what they want. Uh, retailers need to rely on the manufacturer for their data to find out what sells better. And and uh, uh, manufacturers need to look at retailers to say, hey, what sells better here? What a store in Philadelphia might sell effectively might not sell that well in central PA, even if it's the same supermarket organization. Yeah. I mean, I my my perspective has always been and will always be that that partnership piece is is critical, that manufacturers and brands need to partner with retailers and retailers need to partner with with brands and when when they both approach it from that perspective you really end up doing the consumer justice and doing well by the consumer yeah i think that's obviously um basic and 
I've been to hundreds of conf- uh, conferences over the last 40 years where I've heard that kumbaya thing. I'd say only in the last five years has, have I seen that, that gap tightening and the communications improving. Interesting. Interesting. So before, before we close out the show, um, I want you to just tell, tell my listening audience a little bit about, about your company and what you do, the services you provide, all that. This is, your, this is your opportunity where you get to do your dog and pony for the audience. Well, brief bit of history. Um, we started our company, Best Met Publishing, in 1978. Um, I was one of the co-founders um, with another partner who's retired. Um, we are a B2B publication, strictly trade. Um, our audience consists of food retailers, distributors, manufacturers, so we're on a very narrow channel. And we're kind of the inside baseball of what's going on within the trade. Plus, uh, we're regional. We have uh, two newspapers. One's called Food Trade News. One's called Food World, um, which covers uh, uh, the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. We have a reference book called The Grocery Industry Directory, uh, which we publish once a year. It's a listing guide. And, uh, you know, our goal has been focused regionally. And as I mentioned before, a little bit of inside baseball stuff on what's happening within the industry. Mm-hmm. What, what are some new things you have, have going on? I know you've been talking to me about this. You've got a big launch coming up. Uh, and what, what is that? In the next month or so, we're going to relaunch our website. Right now, it's best-met.com. We're changing that to foodtradenews.com, a little easier and, and uh, uh, familiar. Uh, we're going to have much more uh, content. Uh, we'll have some interactive stuff. And uh, down the road, we hope to uh, do something like this. We hope to uh, uh, launch a, a podcast and engage people within the industry. Um, uh, part of the launch of the website will include a little deeper dive into more non-traditional channels. Uh, we do cover all the retail, but focus a little bit more maybe on convenience stores, clubs, um, and some of the uh, other channels now involved in food retail. And uh, over the last six or seven years, we've expanded into parts of the Southeast, basically tracking where the retailers operate following them. Uh, we'll probably do a little bit more geographic expansion because uh, players are coming in from um, from all parts of the country now. The Northeast, particularly, is a desirable place to, to do business. It's expensive, but everybody wants to be here. So we'll continue to try to track the activity of those retailers who are here and who are uh, uh, who want to be here. So you've been a great um, resource and partner for many of the brands that we work with on a regional basis. How can how can uh, folks from my listening audience get a hold get a hold of you if they need to? Um, you can uh, uh, go to our website, uh, which right now is www.best-met.com. Um, in a few weeks, it will be foodtradenews.com. Or you can email me personally, jmetzger at best-met.com. That's J-M-E-T-Z-G-E-R at B-E-S-T hyphen M-E-T dot com. Jeff, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate it. 
You've been listening to Jamie Allabach on the Peppered Podcast, where we bring seasoned talk for food and beverage marketing and brand professionals. Let's grow your brand together.